Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Oliver Markley. Oliver's career began as a design engineer, but quickly shifted to social psychology and proactive policy research on possible, probable, preferable alternative futures, ultimately specialising in the development of intuition-based visioning methods for proactive insight, foresight, and wise choosing in order to help people realise the futures they aspire to. Oliver is a member emeritus of the Association of Professional Futurists, a fellow emeritus of the World Futures Study Federation, and professor emeritus and former chair of the graduate program in the Studies of the Future, which was at the University of Houston Clear Lake, and is the program now that has subsequently moved and is located at the University of Houston's current Futures program. Welcome to FuturePod, Oliver. Thank you, Peter. I'm glad to be here. It's great to be finally speaking to you, Oliver. Your name has come up very often in our interviews with other members of the teaching faculty at Houston, obviously, other people that were taught by you. So yeah, your reach has been tremendous. It is a privilege for me to actually have a chat to you. So question one, So everyone loves question one, it's the story. So what is the Oliver Markley story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? (laughs) Oh dear, Peter, I I confess that my personal story should start at the end rather than the beginning. (laughs) I am 84, I've been retired for 20 years. I'm currently living in an assisted living retirement community where like many of those with me here, I experienced various age-related losses of capacity, including all of a sudden it's like, ah, words fail and there's nothing. So I will do it my best shot. But in answer to your question of what is my story, I think it probably should start when I graduated in engineering uh, as an undergraduate, won a four-year graduate fellowship the Danforth, as it was known, for people who have a religious background who want to teach uh, college. And I won one of these. I took it to Stanford, where my fluid mechanics teacher said, if you go to Stanford, you must have a course taught by an electrical engineer named Willis Harmon. Uh. It's called a seminar in the human potential. It turns out that that seminar transformed many lives including my own. Willis was a uh, pioneer of the new so-called third force of humanistic psychology, and he introduced us to writers like Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers and that, and he introduced us to the whole new world of psychedelic research as a way of contacting higher consciousness. Well, I fell in love with all of this, and as a result, I was clear that I needed to transform from engineering, mechanical engineering, to social psychology in order to become what I thought of as a humanistic social engineer. And so as it turns out, I got accepted at uh, Northwestern University with the great research methodologist Donald T. Campbell, 
And since I only had three years of fellowship left, I hustled around and I was able to do a thesis master's and a PhD all in three years. And at that time, Willis had left Stanford University as a teaching base and moved over to Stanford Research Institute to do research on all of these kinds of things. And he had just won a multi-year contract from the U.S. Office of Education to look at 33 years ahead to the year 2000 and draw back implications for educational policy. An educational uh, policy research center, they were called. And he offered me the slot of being to manage methodology development. Well, (laughs) of course, I left at the chance and is off to the races. Wow, that's an amazing that's an amazing start to uh, to a career to both you know get the chance to to be alongside one of the giants and also really be given you know the ultimate playpen. Yes, exactly. So it was we almost broke our pick trying to figure out how to do this alternative futures research. Finally, found a way to project whole futures as future histories rather than as now oftentimes thought about called scenarios or like cross-sectional cross-cuts on the future. Mm -hmm. And basically when we, out of some several hundred of such alternative futures that we looked at, only a small handful were by any of the stretch of the imagination desirable. And all of those involved either incredible good luck or deep-seated transformation about such things as pollution, population growth, resource depletion, armaments buildup, etc. And so as a methodologist, I reasoned that if transformation is a keynote to the really important futures to study, then methodologies, methods of thinking that are based on rational analysis just don't cut the mustard. Because that's basically like trend projection. We need to have ways of visioning whole new possibilities that don't come from the rational basis, but that come from the intuition, the wisdom sources within ourselves. So I basically, I uh, undertook a private research process to identify potential best practices for tapping intuition as a source of imaginal, what I end up calling imaginal vision. And it turns out that the Best practice undoubtedly was relaxation-based guided imagery. I found that by taking a course in self-hypnosis, which I learned not for this purpose, but in order to learn how to do speed reading. I used self-hypnosis to speed reading to get handle all the things we had to cover. And in that process, I learned a process that derives from something called Silva Mind Control, which is basically a way to go down a 10-step process of deep relaxation and let go of expectations and beliefs and and open up into new possibilities. So I basically enlisted my uh, colleagues as a weekly pilot test group, and we would simply take the most difficult problem of the week that we were having a problem dealing with and would select one, then given my newly found abilities to do this, I would go inside and I would intuit a research process, a visionary research process 
through which to do it. And then I would lead the rest of the group. For example, Peter Schwartz was uh, heading a, a, a scenario study for the U.S. Tra- Office of Transportation. And we wanted to look at the conditions of smog above the Los Angeles basin in the year 2025. So I basically had us all imagine that we were in a 10-foot diameter eyeball, an imaginal eyeball that was our space-time ship. When we flew this eyeball above the Los Angeles basin, and everybody would look out of that eyeball and get what they got as a vision. Then we'd come back out of the relaxation. We would share with each other what we got. And out of that, we would get tangible results, not as forecasts, but as visionary possibilities that then we would use the rational analytic tools to deal with. And it worked just very well. Given that you were working on this research with professional colleagues, what were your initial observations of people's comfort in actually working this way? Well, there was a certain amount of learning to learn. I basically taught them many of the same processes of relaxation and, if you will, self-hypnosis that I had learned. And I would basically count them down as we went. And then I would basically said, here's a problem. And I would basically suggest things to take a look at, but it's up to them what they see. Mm -hmm. And their comfort level was quite high once we got into it. The credibility was initially fairly low, but as an example of how that came in, we did a, uh, a run through of the scenarios before doing a briefing uh, to the client. One of the people who was most suspicious about the credibility of all this was something of a hard-bitten transportation engineer who had been transplanted into our group in order that we would reflect hard-headed thinking. Yep. And he was skeptical. So when we went through the run-throughs, he came back and he said, wow, for the first time, I feel like I understand these because I lived through them. But I hear this is not going to work because as I went through this process and thought from the client standpoint, it's not going to work for this reason. So we simply changed the design of the briefing in the little Sunday afternoon pilot test group. And so the group took the revised thing back to the client. It worked. And we said, oh, my God. That is exactly what we needed, but we didn't see it without doing that visionary process. And that really did a lot to restore credibility. When was this process running roughly? And was this sort of in the early 70s? This was about the early 1970s, about 1972 through 1974 and like that. When it came time to write up the report to the client in the methods section, a big question was, methods used. Do we talk about doing this or not? This uh, pilot test and using the visionary methods, we decided to not mention it because they're just not credible. And the whole studies of the future issue have facing credibility issues. And then as, as we get to the methods thing, I may have another story about how important it is to sell the credibility of this process up front before you report the results. Yeah, in which case the client really wants the outcomes rather than the methodologies employed to, to get the outcome. Yes. So at any rate, uh, I did that. And that worked very well. And uh, after several years of that work for the U.S. Office of Education, they came back to us and said, essentially, 
congratulations, you did what we wanted you to do, but now we decide that this is not what we need. The re-election cycle of four years amounts to the planning horizon we need to work within. And even though you have uh, come as a result of your futures research and saying that we needed to have a transformed approach to education that would be ecology oriented, we don't have a mandate to do that from Congress. So we're kind of dead in the water on that. Yeah. So they shifted our work to things like education of the disadvantaged and educational technology and that. And Willis Harmon and I, being bitten by the bug of transformative thinking, looked for new clients. And the main new client we found was the Charles F. Kettering Foundation, who was looking for a way to get more bang for the buck. And they interviewed futurists on both coasts and like that. And they ended up picking Willis Harmon because he was really clear that the thing that mattered most was the the issue behind the issues, Mm. which for him is consciousness. And so they said, they they gave us a go. And the, the study that the Kettering Foundation first had us do involved identification of critical societal problems. And it was the first whole study that I was given direction of. And it then led to a follow-up study in which the major critical problem we looked at was about future imagery that's driving the under the issue behind the issue, imagistic driver of development and the possibility of a new paradigm, as Thomas Kuhn used that term, but applied to a whole society, not just a discipline like physics. So it was a massive experiment. We did that uh, study, and it ended up calling, we're rather sorry for the term, changing images of man. It should have been changing ethos of humanity or something like that. But anyway, yeah. we did that, and it was a pioneering study that uh, for we were not able to get it published for 10 years. And so it kind of circulated as an underground document among many people and uh, turned out to be a pivotal uh, contribution to the field. The thing that strikes me, Oliver, is, you know, we're sitting here in 2021 at the end of a a two-year pandemic that looks like it's going to roll into at least the third year. And how much things have fundamentally not changed from the early 70s that we still keep searching for solutions to problems, but we have this deep underlying identified need to to transform how we think about ourselves and our place in the world and other people. It's, it's still the same conversation, isn't it? Yes, it is. And the issue behind the issues, other than values and such like, is what Buckminster Fuller called systemic integrity. Yeah. He contrasted eth- ordinary ethics, like honesty and transparency net. Systemic integrity is where you look at the whole system whether it's an organic system or what, and ask, are all the pieces present and working together harmoniously? Yeah. And as I look at the deep cause analysis, the lack of systemic integrity is the main, the main deal. Yeah. Really, I think when people talk about wisdom, that's what they're talking about, aren't they? They are really saying that the person is wise, not for any single action or for any narrow interest, but it's, it's wisdom for both the situation and 
the entirety of everything else. Yeah. There was another main study that uh, didn't attract much attention, but uh, I was given charge of a small study to look at the so-called carbon dioxide issue, <laughs> global warming. And it turns out that I had a really ace ecologist on my staff who did a detailed feedback chart of all the known phenomena involving this issue, including those that the National Academy of Sciences had simulated in the global circulation, computer simulations, and those variables that were not included. And it turns out that most of the variables that were not included in the global circulation computer studies were positive feedback. Yeah which is deviation amplifying, which would mean that in principle, their computer-based forecasts are systemically low, too low. Mm. So I tried to point that out and to a reasoning process that indicated that the major phenomena that we would be able to recognize before global warming-related phenomena would be weather change having to do with the fact that, which is a function of the rate of change of increase in CO2 in the, mac in the, in the atmosphere, which when that rate of increase is greatest, that's when you see most weather change. Yeah. And that has turned out to be exactly the case. And the fact that I could not get that recognized because I was not a climatologist, I published it later in, in the Futures Journal, Journal of Technology Forecasting and Social Change. And it became really the poster child example of what I've called a type two wild card that has high probability, but low credibility. And then there's a whole family of type three and yep. type four wild cards that I may talk about later. At what point, Oliver, did you start realizing that you were a modern day Cassandra? Yes, exactly. Well, it's it really caps from feeling like a stranger in a strange land and uh, without getting too uh, cosmic about it, that's why I came. That's why I'm here. Yeah, true. We're glad you came. So, <laughs> so I guess I would, I would that would end uh, in terms of my story. After ten years at SRI, both uh, Stan, both Carmen and I had pretty much had enough. Yeah, uh, he got recruited to be the president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences that had been founded by the astronaut Edgar Mitchell. And I got recruited to uh, teach and chair the new master's level program in studies of the future at the University of Houston's branch campus out in Clear Lake City, right next to the Johnson Space Center. So I spent the next 23 years there. The first thing I did was to interview the graduates. Been, the program had been underway for two years. And when I interviewed the graduates, they said the two major problems that they faced that they would have liked to have been trained to how to handle is, one, how do you talk about being a futurist? What is this? How do you describe this field? And the second is, uh, they hadn't got training in the specific skills to get jobs and to do the jobs. Yeah. So I basically undertook a whole class to use the organization development and strategic planning things I'd learned at SRI. And we developed a design to transform the program into how to, how to talk and how to do futures research. It was oriented toward consulting 
and being, so to speak, a consultative futures research as opposed to a knowledgeable about the ability to argue the merits and the demerits of growth versus no growth yeah. in a liberal arts kind of a way. And we have interviewed as part of FuturePod great slabs of the teaching faculty, obviously Peter Bishop and Chris Jones and Andy Hines and others, and, and of course, so many of the graduates of that program. It was clear that the main thing that a chairman of a program needed to do was on administration and a lot of administrative handholding that I had little patience for. Peter Bishop was getting tired of teaching one statistics class after another and he, frankly, got the bug of, oh, this futures, I'm interested. So it cut with him a deal. If we teach him how to do futures and how to teach futures, he could share the program and it was a done deal. Yeah. So he basically took over the a, a chairmanship of the program and continued that until we had, whenever we had a, a bump in the road that needed some transformation, then I would take over again for a, a year and then hand it back. And that worked out very well. The two of you were a, were certainly a hell of a tag team, no question. You must have, you know, like any good like any good wrestling competition, you must have faced some fierce oppositions using some some illegal methods to try and uh, to try and beat you. But you kept the program going, which which was a great effort. What I did do at the University of Houston, Clear Lake, uh, that my specialty, I was tired of writing grant applications and getting funded research which is the way we survived at SRI. So I basically made my specialty the teaching of a class called Visionary Futures, which is where I deepened my skill level and my teaching abilities to do this visionary inquiry. And I basically uh, would frankly use altered states of consciousness in the classroom. So that, that went well. And during that process, and I developed a series of tools that I will talk about in a bit. After 23 years, I'd kind of had enough and my marriage was going in a, in a different direction that I kind of needed to attend to. So I took early retirement in the year 2000. I ended up in Hawaii for a couple of, inter- couple of years learning new approaches to meditation and uh, uh, touching in with ecology and after that time, I basically returned to the U.S. mainland and uh, have done a variety of things. And so I ended up publishing a lot. So that's probably my story in a nutshell. Let's move to the second question, the, uh, the methods question, where I asked the guest to explain a, a framework or a philosophy or an approach to, to their craft that is central to who they are and what they do. And obviously, I'm really hoping that you'll talk about the intuition-based visioning. And to, to talk to the community, while you will obviously talk about the concept and the, and the theories behind it, to also touch on some of the the actual challenges and opportunities for practitioners to use use these things. So over to you, Oliver. Okay, so I suppose that the most usable of my various tools is something called visionary time travel, 
or it might be called better imaginal time travel. And it's basically where you, there are various uses for it, but in terms of strategic planning, it's a really good way to do anticipatory impact assessment where you're asking, what happens if I do policy A or policy B? What would be the likely outcomes? Which would be preferable? So basically what you do is you make clear what policy A and policy B is. You relax your intention and your belief as to which is possible, which is preferable. So you come into the exercise with an open mind. You go into the process of deep relaxation. And then a guide basically leads you through from the short-term future into the longer-term future. And you be aware of what it feels like, what it feels like to you, yourself, what it was feel like to your work team, to your client, whoever. And as you move that from the short term to the long term, then you kind of, at the end, get a kind of a sense of all of that and you bring it back and you record it. Then you go and you do the same thing for the second future and you come back and record that, and then often just ask, okay, now you have what future A and future B looked like and felt like. Suppose there's a future C that capitalizes on the strengths of each and minimizes the the weaknesses or the threats of of each, and uh, is there any hybrid thing that might make sense? And you come back and record that. And it turns out that that often is uh, the third one is, is, is the one that's useful. Yeah. So uh, that is a, an impact assessment version of the mental time travel. You can also use mental time travel of just searching for surprises, breakthroughs, and see what happens sometimes as you go through the vision, you suggest a right angle turn in the journey that symbolizes a transformation and what do you see? So people see surprises like that. Can I ask you a couple of, I'm going to take you into the kind of practitioner pragmatics, I call it. To do that, and I'm just going to take you on what you said, you've got a situation where we're doing policy impact analysis. We've got we've got two, maybe three possible futures emerging from policy. So, So my first question is, do you write a script a specific script that you then use to move the group through? I generally find it useful to have kind of headlines or an uh, bullet block outline, but it wants to, the, the, the facilitation wants to come from the heart, wants to be a flow state as well. And always try not, Peter, try not to say what you will see, but what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're setting the scene rather than telling the story. Yes. Some people in doing this make the mistake of saying, and now you see a tree and now you see a brook. I'm exaggerating, but yeah. A second question was you talked about taking the people through a a guided vision, so to speak, for option one. And then you said, well, now you repeat that for two. How soon after the first one would you move from, in other words, would you sort of do one and then move them into to do the second one? Or would you allow some time to pass? It depends on the context. Generally, we'd go one for one, what you might also take a, a pee break, 
and do it, but generally we do it at the same time. Right. The main thing that happened in the Visionary Futures class, as I would have students repeatedly do mental time travel, going through the vision of the short-term and then the long-term future that involves present trends, extended future. Gradually, the short-term future in the in the early 80s looked pretty good, but the longer-term future looked very bad. And people, by doing this repeatedly, the students actually got depressed about the fact that what are we if if what we're doing does the future look so bad? What can we do about that? But part of my founding uh, pieces like the Hippocratic Oath of Do No Harm, and if my u- repeated use of visionary time travel on least surprises future leads to depression, then I need to do find a way to deal with that. So I then used the same kind of set of tools, visionary tools, to come up with a uh, way to handle that. A, a way that I ended up finding to do it was in a chapter on by an author named Edwin Steinbrecher on a book called Spirit Guide Meditation. And basically it's a paragraph that says, if you find a problem you just can't deal with and it's just giving you difficulty, simply go into it, give give an image of that, and let the higher reaches of your consciousness transform that image into the highest image that's relevant for you at this time, and let it happen. And so I developed a, a, a process called imaginal revisioning that does this. And I've got a, a space on the internet that I'm developing where people can, can do this for themselves. If people found visioning, time travel visioning, as you said, somewhat depressing in terms of what they imagined, then what happened when they did the revisioning? The revisioning typically shifts their consciousness so that it's no longer a problem and they see some new uh, things that they can do that feel satisfactory. Right. Is it that the person, when you're actually inside a problem and you've actually named it as a problem? Is that the fact that you've actually moved them from being located in the problem to actually observing it in a broader context and suddenly it takes on different properties? I would say both. Right. The practitioner that wants to move into this kind of way of working, they have to do the preparation that there has to be a process to basically both support the people and actually yes. and make it a safe process. You don't just simply decide to do visioning without thinking it through. Yes. And in most institutional settings, visioning is not a safe process. Yeah. It so much lacks credibility that it must essentially be done in, uh, so to speak, an asylum setting. Yeah. Where there's confidentiality and training. The training can be done in a a very short time. In fact, if set up and right, I do mental time travel in a in a keynote speech, but it's set up in such a way that it's very very quick and not a lot of it, it's 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 like in the, in it's in the context of an interesting game to do, and they get images. Sometimes the images are so striking that it leads to transformation on the shot. But but basically, the development of credibility of the process is an absolutely critical. Yeah. And I must say that 
So I was thinking about doing this interview and looking at the field as a whole. I really became rather profoundly depressed at my disappointment in the field and my disappointment in my own self and uh, in my inability to inspire the students to do what they need on their own to have the thing continue. That it has never really achieved a critical mass. Mm. It's out there. It works just like tools of enlightenment are out there and they work. Yeah. <laughs> but who many are called, not too many hear the <laughs> respond to the call. Uh, Andy Hines, who I'm sure you know, uh, Andy coined a phrase, what he called permission foresighting, which, and what Andy used to say was that you need to build the confidence and the client needs to grow such that you can do visioning work. In other words, you don't do visioning on the first date. It's kind of a thing that yes. each of you need to learn about one another, become confident in the space. And then when the time is right, then a group that's ready and a practitioner that's skilled, you can do the visioning work. Yes, precisely. And the challenge there, of course, is that for many of the people that work in our field, we actually don't get the opportunity to work with a client for a long period of time. The client generally comes yeah. in and wants a single engagement with a single outcome. And by and large, my experience is clients really don't want to involve themselves in systemic change, yeah. even though that's the, the keynote of what is needed. Yeah. Thanks, Oliver. Let's move to third question. I think we're sort of we're sort of leaning into it now. How Oliver Markley both senses the emerging futures around him and what particularly you are paying attention to, what is getting your attention and what are the futures that you see emerging, be them preferable or non-preferable, so to speak? Well, I wrote a paper, a prize-winning paper about research and action on the upside of down. And the upside of down is a, a, a phrase that was created by a Canadian futurist. Homer Dixon. Yes, in fact. And it has to do with, it involves panarchy theory, among other things. And as things get tighter, tighter, wrapped up, finally there's a, a, a breakdown and a transformative breakdown and systemic restructuring. Uh, that's the down thing. And then the question is, how can we anticipate that so that then we have another upswing that leads to transformation. And I think that is the, in the emerging future that I see. There's a science fiction author, William Gibson, made a phrase, the future, all the different futures are already happening. They're just not evenly distributed. The thing about alternative, all the alternative futures, they are all happening <laughs> right now. They're just not evenly distributed. Yes, that's right. So there are all these panarchy-related transformative cycles happening, and they, were, they are getting more intense all the time. Oh, my God. Failed states, pandemic, starvation, we're really in for it. And at the same time, there are breakthroughs in consciousness and wonderful things are happening in terms of the human potential. Some here, some there. Let's go to question four, because it is one that you said that the people at Houston were very interested in. And I've got to tell you that 
years later, it still is the number one thing that when you're learning or you're practicing is, is, is how do you describe what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? As I was first learning to teach how to talk about what futures do and how to deal with that, in doing research about that for myself, looking at different ways of talking about this in party scenes, I learned to be very simple and watch people's eyes and as soon as their eyes glaze over to ask what it is that you do. Yep. That basically, and if somebody say, oh, that's really interesting, tell me more, then we really get into it about alternative futures and like that. Yeah. So it really depends on the context. And the thing that I increasingly am aware of is that there's a real variation in the population, even among uh, client communities, on their degree of havingness for ambiguity and uncertainty. Yep. And if that um, that havingness is low, you have to be very careful how you talk about yep. it. Since retirement, and since really re I sometimes refer introduce myself as a retiring futurist, <laughs> my avocation for decades has actually been the experiential identification of promising practices for human well-being, particularly those that involve personal transformation. And so I have literally dozens of processes that I've personally explored and mastered. And the main thing now is really how to release egoic control of perceptions of separateness of being apart from reality, basically, to relaxing that into a part of reality and gradually coming from source at the center of one's being into awake awareness. Yeah. So that's really the key as awake awareness. And it brings with it a heartfelt capacity for compassion and well-being even for people who disagree with you. I'll simply use a phrase, systemic political dishonesty <laughs> and fraud of how to be radiantly accepting of that as part of the human dilemma. Yeah. So that's really the, the, the how I describe what I do is about that. It's about relaxing the sense of apartness of being at core part of the whole human and cosmic dance. Okay, Oliver, we're at the end, the last question. So what do you think is the greatest challenge facing the people in our field and for the work going forward and for what the world needs? I'm glad you asked that, Peter. I think my answer would be, what is the most important challenge I see facing professional futurists? And it is simply the need to recognize and explore the evolutionary potential of higher consciousness, period. I suppose that's an answer, but it also throws the responsibility over to each person to, to try and find the best way they can do that. Yep. I think that's true. And we have a lot of historical 
guidance out there from all the cultures. There's what uh, Aldous Huxley wrote a book called The Perennial Philosophy, which is the highest common denominator of all the major religions in that. And it's, to use the metaphor that he liked, it's like there's a mountain and many paths up to the mountain, but there's only one top to the mountain. And that top to the mountain is pure awareness. Oliver, it's, it's been a privilege. I've heard so much about you, of you, and uh, it's just fantastic that I've had a chance to, to meet you and have a conversation with you. So thank you very, very much for taking some time out to share with the community and also thank you for how much you've given us as a field. Well, thank you, Peter. Glad to do it. And thank you for doing such a great interview and for the whole future pod that you and your colleagues are producing. I think it's a major contribution to the field. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.